0: You're listening to the Westside Podcast, a part of the LA International Church of Christ family of churches, worshiping God in LA since 1989. Well, good morning, Westside Church. It's uh, an honor to be here. Very excited to uh, have the opportunity to spend the morning with you here today, uh, along with my incredible wife, Jacqueline Marici. Um, a lot of things have been going on. Uh, I do want to just kind of on the front side here though, if for any reason I end up burping while I'm up here, I, I'm on some different meds for walking pneumonia and I, I've got this wonderful mix of oregano oil and peppermint tea, but there is a nice side effect to that. So it's not being disrespectful. It's not me uh, letting you know how much I enjoyed my meal. But anyway, there you have it. So we've got that out of the way. I do want to uh, thank Joy this morning. What an incredible job of of vulnerability. She's kind of sharing her life with us today and the impact of Christ, hearing about her family. Uh, With that, she'll probably be, I I know for a fact, at least I'll have one person here that will appreciate the message this morning and that she uh, quoted a passage from my primary text this morning out of Ephesians 2. So uh, with that, do you want to thank our tech team and our worship team? You guys, this is amazing. Super appreciate all the time and energy that goes into this. John Thorne, who heads it all up. Um, love the new setup here. This is really great. We'd like to open up with a prayer, though, so we can uh, go ahead and bow our heads. Uh, I think many of you may have heard, too, uh, about the uh, junior Canadian hockey team up in Canada. Uh, what, what an incredible tragedy there. So I didn't want to take a moment to pray for that, the family members up there as well. Father, uh, I just thank you for this morning the opportunity that you give us to come together and worship you. I so appreciate walking into a room like this knowing that uh, there's one thing and one thing only that unifies us, and that's your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, I love the diversity we have in our church. I love the fact that there are so many boundaries and walls that take place in this world today, but Jesus, you do such an amazing job of breaking those down. Uh, You demonstrated it with your own life and a willingness to go to the cross, not to just die for a few people, but for the entire world. And Father, we're grateful for that gift. Uh, As we uh, go to the message this morning, please fill me with an extra portion of the Spirit. Help me to get through it with my voice. And uh, beyond that, God, I just love you and so impressed and amazed by the way that you love us on a daily basis. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, um, you're going to have to bear with me on one other thing this morning. Um, I am a grandfather, so... This is my little grandbaby. may not be able to hear her, but... Uh, she's trying to get her mom to participate in doing the Darth Vader theme here. She's trying to get her to put down the phone. You know, us parents and our technology, right? And there you have it. There's the title of the message this morning. I would have let it go on a little bit longer, but there's a time crunch here. So that's why the the soundtrack clicked out so quickly. But we're, we're all familiar with those monitors and the heartbeat. And ultimately, we know the difference between this and this is flatline. This is not what you want to see, right? And that's what we're going to be dealing with this morning is just what it means to be alive in Christ. Now... One of the things I'm going to start with is we're all familiar with the tactics the advertising industry uses when it comes to before and after pictures, right? I've got a few of those for us this morning. This is one of my all-time favorites. It goes back to the uh, 80s, and uh, pretty miraculous change up there in the hair, right? You know, as you can see, it says, you know, hey, reclaim your confidence, eliminate all your bald spots. And. It goes on to giving the significance, you know, 100% back, money-back guarantee. And um, it's basically a can of... How many of you have ever seen the cans you use for flocking your Christmas tree? You know, the, you can go to Home Depot and kind of pick those up. It's the same principle. It's just basically spray paint with some fibers in it. And um gives you a full head of hair, or not. You know, the this one may not be quite as clear on the screens, but the before and afters. You know, we got the one-minute facelift here. And... uh the next one i think we're all pretty familiar with i love the tummy tuck i mean we, we've got this transformation that takes place just by wearing this belt for a few minutes each day and um how many of you are involved in some form of physical activity how many of you buy the fact that that thing can actually convert you into the uh, bef- the after picture there we all know it takes a little bit more than a belt There's some supplements or things of that nature but the thing that I really love about Paul is when it comes to these advertising tactics, there's nothing new under the sun, but he was using them to really convey a point about who we are when it comes to before and after our interaction with Christ. Uh, again, primary passage this morning is, comes out of Ephesians 2, in verse 1. And what we get to see Paul using this tactic here in this particular passage, in Ephesians 2, uh, two, verse one. We've got this before and after. Verses one through three, Paul paints the before picture before Christ, and then verses four through seven, he gives us the after perspective. And then Paul brings it all together in verses eight through ten. But we'll be able to see the the goal that he's going after here as we read through this. In Ephesians two, verse one, it reads, "As for you, and again, this is the before." You are dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us have also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following his desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. You know, you think about this before picture, as we saw with the uh, one that we just looked at, the, uh, the tummy tuck. Before picture isn't very flattering, is it? I mean, honestly, in some ways it's kind of hard to believe that it could be any worse. First word Paul uses is dead. Ultimately, it doesn't get much worse than that when you're dealing with life, Right. And he goes on from there. So he says, you know, that we are spiritually dead in our pre-Christ, pre-conversion state. And ultimately, this is the result of our sin. Sin kills. Sin destroys. Sin annihilates. Now, the second part of this picture, he talks about as being enslaved. In verse 2, following the ways of the world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. In the uh, CE version of the Bible, it says, Obedient to the devil at work in those who are disobedient giving into our own cravings and sinful nature. And again, the picture being painted here shows us that we're under the control of three things. The world, the devil, and our cravings, being enslaved to them. Now, in the next, just thinking this through, these are the areas that we're going to focus on as we move forward. These three areas. Paul addresses in this passage the world, the devil, and the flesh. And when it comes to the world... This is what we step out into every single day. Our environment, our culture, all of these things work against God to keep us in sin. And you name the sin, I can probably give you an example of how society makes it look appealing, acceptable, and normal. I mean, you look at our marketing campaigns where there's billboards, TV, internet, whatever the case may be, they make lust normal. You know, this, this wanting of things that ultimately can be destructive in our lives. Greed, ultimately, that's what our economy is built on. Self-centeredness. Almost every movie, TV show, self-help book has a theme. When it gets down to someone trying to get what they want, and I love how J.B. Phillips paraphrases this here in Romans twelve, verse two. It's a verse that we're very familiar with in the NIV. What Philip says is do not be conformed any longer to the... Or excuse me, the the verse in Romans 12 says do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of the world. What Philip says is do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. And this is the pressure that we're dealing with every single day. Satan loves what takes place in his domain, the world today. And that we have all these things vying for our attention. All these things pressuring us into a mold that tries to keep us separated from God. Now the next one is the devil. Some of you may think, Steve, seriously, come on, man, this is 2018. You're going to be talking about the devil, that guy with the horns and the pitchfork. Uh, No, I'm not talking about the Halloween costume. I'm talking about what we actually have to contend with daily. We are going to talk about the devil. Why? The Bible talks about the devil. And Ephesians talks more about the spiritual realm that we live in and its forces than any other New Testament book. Now, I would imagine the next one is something that we all have either heard and maybe in some instances have used at one point in time or another, but that is, the devil made me do it. Pretty well-known excuse. But it doesn't make us any less responsible, even if it's true, when it comes to our actions, even though this is a reality. The devil is active in our world and is working to keep us from God. The third one are the cravings of the flesh. Verse 3. It lists the third thing that we can be enslaved by, which is our sinful nature. Our old self, if we're disciples, if you're still studying the Bible and trying to make a decision on how to break down that wall of sin that separates us from God, it's the current self. You know, I just want to encourage you to be urgent about the things that you can do personally that will break down that wall and put you in a proper relationship with God. Again, this is the before versus the after. Now, It may seem strange to describe ourselves as slaves of our own desires, but our culture defines freedom as basically the ability to do and encourages us to do whatever we want, wherever we want, without any thought or just mindfulness as to... The potential impact it can have on us in a bad way, not, not to mention those around us. So much of what goes on in the world today that we see this negative in the media is because just that. People looking to promote themselves regardless of what, who, where people are at, who, who people are. It's just self-focused and it's incredibly destructive. You know, you ask anyone who's ever struggled with addiction or changing or growing, changing habits... They understand the significance in this passage. You know, for me, as a Christian, it was amazing the compromise on how that particular aspect of things, that sinful desire. When I became a Christian, pornography was something that was huge in my background before I became a Christian. But it was amazing for me, in becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ and understanding how that sin, and that covers a number of different areas, the world, lust, Satan, whatever, but really coming to an understanding as to what that does and that being one of the things that Jesus died for was huge. I went the first nine years of my Christianity without an issue, which really blew me away. But I realized with the situation that took place, that put me into, it was basically a transition. I'd been in the East region for nine years, transitioned to Orange County. And you know, when we were in the East, it seemed like everything was amazing. Everything was going so well. I can't really even remember a whole lot of conflict. But moving to Orange County, the situation changed up immensely. Um, I think because of having been pulled out of family and friends and just even some of the situations they were going through, I started feeling this pain, literally. I'd be getting phone calls about what was going on and the situation that was taking place. My parents fell away uh, during this period of time. And that's on them, ultimately, when it comes to taking personal responsibility for their own salvation. But needless to say, it had a very negative impact on me. And where my compromise started out was I was into bodybuilding years back in the 80s. Um, and, I, you know, from time to time, I would get bodybuilding magazines for, from a standpoint of the supplements and different workouts and that kind of thing. But the magazines had made a major transition from the early 80s to where I was at then in the late 90s. And then ultimately it's soft porn. I mean, there was so much in the way of women wearing basically nothing. But it, what happened with that compromise is it led to other compromises, which ultimately was internet porn. This is as a minister. This is as a Christian. And this is what this passage is talking about when it comes to the cravings of the flesh and compromises that we can make. Now, the, the upside is that you can get out of it, but you've got to be able to come to uh, an actual acknowledgement as to where you are. And I'm super grateful for my wife and the people that were in my life at that time that helped me navigate out of it. But these are the cravings of the flesh that are being talked about. I think really understanding that true freedom comes when we are no longer subject to the fleshly desires that are so incredibly self-destructive. You know, and ultimately when it comes to three, you may be focused on one of the three. It really doesn't matter which one of the three or all three when it comes to blaming blaming the things that we do, the sin that's taking place in our life, but really understanding that all three are operating to keep us in sin and death and separated from God. All three work to keep us from God. And this is something we need to do together. We need to confront each other when it comes to the battle for holiness. We need to remove ourselves from the worldly influences in our life that cause sin. And we need to stand up against the devil. And the means of doing that is relying on God and each other as Christians, more than these things in the world, these influences that cause us to sin. When we do that, when we rely on God, we're capable to remove our old flesh and replace it with His Spirit. Amen? You know, Paul sums up the before picture with what may be the most uncomfortable description in this passage. You ready? Each and every one of us was an object of God's wrath. Ouch. I don't know about you, I don't particularly like the sound of that. It's not super encouraging. But again, keep in mind, this is our old self prior to coming to Christ. We were by nature's objects of wrath. And you think that through, what a terrible place to be, especially when you're looking at this all-powerful, almighty God in heaven, to be an object of His wrath? Wrath is a strong word. It means God's holy anger against sin and the judgment that results. And that is the word Paul uses to describe God's response to our sinful state prior to coming to Christ. You know, we don't talk much about the wrath of the God. I mean, have you guys heard about the wrath of God in the last month? Last six months? Maybe you have in the last year? Obviously not a topic we're very comfortable with. I can tell by the silence out there today that that's probably the case. But think about this. Maybe it has become politically incorrect, even in churches today. It's probably because we see the wrath of God in opposition to something that we much rather embrace, which is the love of God. So if we're forced to choose... I don't know about you, I can say that I've done this. I'd much rather opt for the love of God than God's wrath. But here's the thing, in reality, the two are not opposites. What did you say? What, they're not opposites? Here's the thing, they need each other. They totally need each other. God cannot be completely loving if He does not hate the things that rob us of living full lives. Similarly, he cannot be wrathful if he didn't care about us, because if he didn't care about us, he would be ambivalent. Right, how, how many of you want an ambivalent God? No, I mean, I, it blows my mind that he knows the gradual progression of the hairs on the top of my head as they exit it. <laughs> that's a pretty detail oriented guy, right? I don't think that sounds as, so, uh, that doesn't represent a God that's ambivalent. God loves us. He cares for us. And that's why the two are so needed. You know, I think thinking this through, we've got a quote that was very convicting for me. Is that when it comes to that wrath, God's wrath and God's love, says the only person who understands something of the greatness of his wrath will be mastered by the greatness of his mercy. As you sit here this morning, are you mastered by the greatness of his mercy? See, the converse is also true. Only the person who has experienced the greatness of God's mercy can understand something of how great His wrath must be. Timothy O'Brien. You know, I believe the other area that we've become uncomfortable with is the lost. We don't think of unsaved people along the lines of being objects of wrath. Do we? I mean, if if we did balcony up here would be full. And this isn't an indictment. This just needs to be something that we think through. And I think as we're the longer we've been around as Christians, it's it's an awesome thing to be able to own that. To know that this that deed to heaven is something that we own. It's something that we have right now as we sit here. But we can lose sight of the bigger picture. We've got to be careful when it comes to this. We don't really think unsaved people Again, are objects of wrath. We've watered down the truth of the gospel, deceiving ourselves into believing that people are generally good, my neighbors are generally good, and God is a just God. So it really won't be that bad for anybody come judgment day, right? They aren't bad people, so God will love them and accept them into heaven and give them grace, right? Brothers and sisters, that's wrong. It isn't supported anywhere in God's Word. Paul makes it clear. God's Word says they are dead, they are enslaved, they are by nature objects of wrath, but that doesn't mean they're without value. If lost people weren't valuable to God, He wouldn't have sent Jesus Christ to die for us, to die for them. It's because of how valuable they are that Jesus did come for us. To get us out of this state of death. This this state of slavery. To eliminate the wrath that is against us because of wrong living. And for that, God sacrificed His Son. And we need to be excited about that. Do we believe the lost are valuable? Seriously, do we believe the lost are valuable? See, understanding the true state of people without Christ needs to motivate us to share the good news with them. The harsh reality is that outside of Christ people perish eternally. People we care about, people we love will perish and they desperately need to know exactly what Paul is talking about in this passage as we go through these next few verses. You know, we've seen what the before picture looks like. Not not a great portrait, right? Are we ready for the after picture? Verse 4. For me this this is one of the most incredible words in scripture. The word "but." I don't know about you, but I love reading along, and there are times, you know, that I may feel hopeless, or there are times where I may feel helpless, or there are times where I may feel discouraged or overwhelmed. Any, Any of you relate to that at all? And ultimately, what it gets down to is how I feel about my relationship with God. Hopeless i not feeling like I measure up. But this, this, this passage is so incredibly amazing. But God. But God, you are not without hope. Let's take a look at this. Greatest word in the scriptures, but. You're not without hope. You think about this, these powerful two-word phrases. We see a lot of them in the Bible. God healed all, gathered in, cast out, raised up. Each of these phrases are used in context with the power of God. However, this one phrase, but, is used 43 times in Scripture. And that surpasses all these other situations where God has made an amazing difference. This small two-word phrase communicates this incredible, tremendous aspect of hope. It's God's response to Satan's challenge. It's the bottom line. It's the last word. Yes, we were direct object of God's wrath, but God... But God has loved us, and He's given us such rich mercy that we were delivered from our condition, our captivity, and our condemnation. Dr. Lloyd Jones is quoted as saying, These two words, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. Again, these two words, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. But God is the gospel. But God, when viewed in relationship to the challenges of life, is to what is up versus what is down. It is, is what we have represented in life as it is to death. But God stands totally opposed to the negative roar of the world that says, No, but God says yes. The world says can't, but God says can The world says won't, but God says will. The world says stop, but God says go. The world says defeat, but God says victory in Christ Jesus. But God climbs the highest mountain and he crosses the darkest valley and he shouts anthems of victory for all of us to hear. And the next three verses describe the change that comes through Christ. This is the after picture, demonstrating the change that takes place through Christ. And again, the focus here is on one thing and one thing only. It's all on God. In Ephesians 2, verse 4. In Ephesians 2, verse 4, it reads, Because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realm in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming age He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressing his kindness to us through Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. You know, in this passage, Paul mentions both God's love and God's mercy. And are each are emphasized here with adjectives, great love, rich mercy. So because of these two amazing characteristics of God, two things have happened to us. Number one, in verse 5, we're made alive. You know, it's only natural logical then, when we see this, the first thing that we have in Christ is life. Life to the full. Life eternal. We were dead. Now we're alive. And that is our testimony. This is our story. Once we were spiritually dead, but now we're spiritually alive. And this incredible truth jumps Paul ahead to verse 8 here where it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. You know, the point that he drives home here is that this entire salvation thing is about the grace of God. It is by grace you've been saved. Salvation. Raised with Christ. I think to understand what Paul is talking about here, we need to go back to Ephesians 1, take a look at verses 19 through 21. 21. And what Paul lies out here is something that we really need to embrace as disciples of Jesus Christ. So he's trying to really just give them a, just emblazon in their memory, in their minds, what they have and what's been accomplished through the cross. He says in verse 19, I pray you understand the incredible great power for us who believe in him. That power is like the working of His mighty strength, which He, God, exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all the rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So what we see doing, Paul doing here is directing our focus to Jesus Christ and the power of Christ, and the power that Christ has over everything because God raised Him up and seated Him at His right hand. And then we come to verse 6 of chapter 2. It says, And then God raised us up with Christ, and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. You know, and after going through the book of Ephesians, and flipping back to one, and coming back to this, I mean, this is one of those things that sometimes I have a hard time embracing for myself personally. Does this verse actually say... What Paul just put out here? Does Paul, after developing this theme of exaltation and the power that Christ has as Lord of all, does this verse now say that we have also been exalted? It's amazing. That's exactly what it says. God, who was unwilling to spare His own Son so that we could have a relationship with Him. Jesus Christ, who was sinless, and because of that was able to overcome the grave, is seated at the right hand of the Father. And Paul goes on to tell us here, we're exalted right along with Christ. Well, i got a couple of whoops there. Hopefully we're getting a little more excited this morning. I know the first half was, you know, I hate being Debbie Downer on the front side, but there is the the back side, which is a much better place to be. Amen? We are exalted with Christ. What a crazy, incredible view of us as God's children. God has raised us up with Christ. And all the power that Jesus controls is ours to access as well. It's no wonder that Paul began this picture with a focus on the great love and rich mercy of Jesus Christ. You know, and again, just kind of thinking this through, wow, who the heck am I to sit around the throne... With Christ, around, with God, around God with Christ. Who are we to sit with Christ around the throne? Well, you know what? I know who we are. And this has got to be the thing that excites us. We are God's children. We've been raised up because of God. We belong there. That is where our citizenship is. That is where our loyalty, our life, and our worship belong. Seated in heaven with Christ. Now, you may be wondering, especially if you're visiting here with us this morning, why in heaven's name would God do such a thing? Well, the answer is right in the next verse, verse 7. It says, in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Why would God do this? God did this so the world can see who He is like. What God is like. I want to ask you a question here. When the world looks at you, do they see the incomparable riches of God's grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ? When the world looks at you, Do they see the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ? Brothers and sisters, God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. And it is by grace you've been saved. Now, do those around us see life as verse 5 says? Do they see us focused around Jesus' throne in heaven? If not, why not? When you entered the waters of baptism, you were handed the deed to heaven. When we claim to be God's children, what people need to see is uh, in us is the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in kindness. You know, one of the things I I am the most challenged by being in the role I am as region leader and church leader in South Bay, and the the eleven people that Jackie and I disciple is you can kind of get an idea from that as to what our sphere of influence is, right? It's you folk. It's church people. And it's a good thing. I love that. But one of the things I miss about the most about my secular job is not having that sphere of influence. And one of the things I feel that, that I've been very blessed by is really understanding what God has done for me. If someone asks me, well, "Why are you a Christian?" I don't have to think. It's there. You know, it's like, "Why do you love your granddaughter?" I don't have to think about it. It's there. But I don't think we spend enough time connecting our relationship with God and really understanding what God has done for us because when people ask us, are we prepared to answer it? And again, with working in the secular world, it was interesting. In the 80s, before I went on staff, much different environment. You could pretty much do or say whatever you wanted. Re-entering the workforce in 2003, I could not believe the employee handbooks. On multiple fronts, but the biggest one was—I was even surprised—they knew the word to put it in there, which was any proselytizing in the workplace will lead to dismissal. For those of you that don't know what proselytizing is, it's sharing your faith. Here's the thing: it doesn't matter what comes out of our mouths. Virtually every secular job I had, someone came to Christ. The job that I hated the most out of all the jobs I ever had was working for yellow book in 2003 That was the only secular employment I could find initially But looking back at those six months of hell and they were very hellacious my wife will attest to that Literally, you know one week I'm doing well and they're having do the sales meetings the next week I'm not my manager's threatening me to go to the GM and let me know that I probably won't have a place next week And this went on for six months. The upside was one of my salesmen became a Christian Shortly after that, his wife became a Christian. Shortly after that, his teen son became a Christian. Was it because of me overtly sharing my faith? Not at all. There was a direct polarity between everybody else on that staff. I didn't cuss. Wasn't into the the water cooler talk about women. The other stuff that went on when we were out on the streets. When my wife called me, on occasion, I've gotten better with this, but on occasion we'd have a fight or something and they'd, they'd hear an exchange. And obviously, you're in the office, so you've got to keep the level down a little bit, which is probably good for her. <laughs> but then there'd be a phone call calling her back and apologizing. And, you know, and I've, I'd have guys cuss me out about that. Dude, you're blah, 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 blah. What are you doing? Apologizing to your wife, man. She needs to come back and call, you know, and all this kind of stuff. But people were able to see a contrast. I wasn't governed by the garbage in this world. And because of that, there's a contrast. And for any one of you that work, you don't have to open your mouth. Right. Just live like Christ. Yeah. This place would be full. Right. There wouldn't be a question about whose you are or where you're going. Right. So when people look at you and I, what do they see? Do you claim the incomparable riches of His grace expressing kindness? See, my prayer for you and for myself is the People will see God through us. They'll taste something of God's goodness through us. They'll taste God's grace through us. They'll see God's mercy through us. And that will awaken a hunger in them for more. This brings us to the heart of the gospel and what is often seen as the heart of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 2 verse 8. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Really is simple salvation by grace through faith. What more needs to be said? God's grace offers it. We receive it by faith. And ultimately, this is so we don't go off and think that we're something special, something great, because of the exercise of our faith. The verse continues to quickly say, it's not of ourselves, it is by nothing that we have earned. It's simply a gift to be believed and accepted. You know, again, I, I love God. I'm kind of a simple guy, and I love the simplicity of God's Word. This is the incredible simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of His great love for us, God offers us the gift of salvation by His grace. All we need to do is have faith. Where does faith come from? Here in the Word. Once again, the truth that we've been confronted with over and over in Ephesians is front and center here. It's all about God and what God did and continues to do in our lives. The focus is on Him. God's still the central character. He's the one that pours out grace and saves us. You know, I really don't understand why it's so hard for so many of us when it comes to just accepting the gift. You know, I've given this a lot of thought and prayer, and maybe it's just a part of the devil's plan to convince us that we have to earn it. To convince us that we have to work for God's love and approval, rather than simply accepting His gift. You know, do you struggle with that? I did. I was adopted, grew up in a very abusive household, and I really, for years, I mean, I saw this stuff. That I've just come to grips with over the last five or six years. But for years, I looked at the love that I got from my mom and dad. My mom, particularly feeling like I was such a derelict, I was so bad, I had to go out of my way just to, to, to please her, to get some semblance of love through the beatings, through the emotional malignment of my character, being told for years I would never measure up to anything. And you know what? Those, those words are powerful. I still hear them today. I get emotional thinking about it. But one of the things that was so amazing was coming into God's kingdom and all of you I had never been so warmly loved or welcomed, with the exception of my mother-in-law, who's absolutely amazing. (laughs) It's true. Jackie will tell you she likes me more than her. I, you know, whatever. (laughs) Excuse me, sorry about that. But just thinking that through, God reestablished my self-esteem as to who I am in God's eyes. And there's absolutely nothing I can do to earn that gift of salvation. There's nothing I can do to to get Him to love me more. He demonstrated that once and forever at the cross. You know, if you find your service of God becoming an attempt to earn His love and acceptance, if you're trying to earn your salvation, I want you to meditate on this verse this week. Memorize it. Write it on your fridge. Make it your screensaver. Whatever you need to do to put it in your face consistently but seek to immerse yourself in the truth that is by grace through faith we are are saved. Going on here. Ephesians 2.10. Now, enliven Christ means we are God's workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's workmanship. You know, and the idea here is one of pride in something you've made. Now, I I know a few of you probably know that feeling. Is uh, Paul Nakakura in here somewhere? Or is he in Kids Kingdom? No, he's not here. You know, I I would imagine that going back a few years we were here, when you guys unveiled your uh, uh, Kingdom Kids program, and uh, there was this like minion that came out on stage, and it was something that Paul designed and made. I I would imagine that when he saw those pictures after the fact, he probably took a step back and was like, man, that's pretty darn awesome. You know, some of you know how it goes when it, you've, you, you've uh, spent hours putting together a special dish for some friends or family families you've had come over, and you know, you just lift that cover and it's like, oh my gosh, that smells better than I even thought it would. <laughs> Workmanship. I mean, there are many of you in this group that are artists. Some of you do that for a living, and you know the sense of accomplishment you get when you finish something, and it, it came out way better than you ever would think or imagine. This is God. God made you, He made you, He made you. He put breath in your lungs and He stood back and He said, Darn it! I'm good! Look at that! That's who you are! You're His workmanship. He stepped back to admire the beauty of what He had created. And it's this idea of craftsmanship. And that's exactly what you and I are. We're the craftsmanship of God. Paul moves on to describe the purpose for which we are created. To do good works. And there's an w- amazing, wonderful balance right here. Almost a tension between verses 9 and 10. And that's why we need to memorize verse 10 as well. Amen? Works don't save us. They don't make us more holy or more spiritual or more important to God. But works flow naturally out of who we've been made by. And that's the craftsmanship of God. We are not saved by works. We are not saved by works. Our works flow out again of who we are created to be. They are a result of salvation. They're not the cause of salvation. And it's critical that we grasp the difference here because it's extremely important for us to be motivated to do these good works which God prepared in advance for us to do because of who we are as saved children of God. And not out of some frantic sense of trying to work our way into heaven. And I hate to admit it, like some of you, in the past, maybe we got more good works done that way. But I wouldn't trade the freedom and the joy that comes from doing things that flow freely from who we are for any frantic, unattainable attempt to earn my way into heaven. The last, verse in, uh, the last sentence in verse 10 is incredibly reassuring. God has prepared all these good works in advance I mean, I don't have to create them. I don't have to go find them I don't I don't have to go looking for them. I don't have to rely on my own strength God has them prepared all prepared in advance Now think about this I would imagine most of us like the idea that we're God's workmanship God's craftsmanship, right? And we're, we're amazing in his eyes God has deliberately laid out for us all these opportunities in advance as well. These appointments with a loss are already scheduled. Think about this. How many of you have experienced someone we shared the good news with tell us they were looking for a church or they're praying for someone to point them to God? Any of you guys have those situations? There's a few of you. There'll probably be a lot more of us if we really understood this. But this is how God works. He prepares those opportunities in advance for us to live out the purpose for which we are created. As we end the message today, the question I need to ask is just this. Looking at your spiritual life this morning, thinking about your spiritual life, is your spiritual life represented by the before picture that Paul painted for us here in Ephesians 2, or the after picture that was painted for us in Ephesians 2? If it's the before, I want to strongly encourage you to read these verses, particularly verses 8 through 10 every day this week. If you're visiting with us and you don't have a Bible, turn to your neighbor they can show you where to pull up a free app to get a free Bible so you can do just that. Or you can go to BibleHub.com you can find it there. But my prayer is that God's Holy Spirit would reveal to you what those verses mean for you personally. And then finally, with that understanding as that we are this amazing workmanship, craftsmanship of God, that we are are to be seated with Christ around God's throne. If we really believe that and embrace that, that's who we will be everywhere that we go. So finally anticipate, be ready for the good works which God has prepared for you this year. Take your focus off yourself and look around to see what the opportunities God has for you to show others the incomparable riches of His grace Expressing his kindness to us in Christ so we can express it to others. Brothers and sisters, please take a moment today to reflect on who you were, that before picture, before you came to Christ and the wall that separated you from God was broken down. And then rejoice in what you've become because of the way God is. God is alive, Jesus is alive. And each and every one of us through Christ are alive now for life to the full and eternity. God bless. You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit thewestsidechurch.com or laicc.net.